You're listening to a sermon from Harvest Plains Church in Castleton, North Dakota. This teaching is meant to encourage you in your faith, but not replace the preaching and accountability that should only come from your own local church. That said, we hope this sermon helps you know God more by simply listening to what he has to say in his word. So I realize that uh, not all of you are interested in politics, nor do you follow the news very closely. Uh, I'm going to begin with this question this morning. How many of you are familiar with the name Vivek Ramaswamy? Raise your hand if that strikes the chord. Yeah, a lot of hands not going up, and that is perfectly understandable. Six months ago, nobody really knew who this guy was. Then he decided to run for president, or at least he's been seeking to become the nominee for the Republican Party. And so he has burst onto the scenes, and he has gotten a lot of attention by the media. In fact, I would say he's a bit of a darling uh, when it comes to the media because he is charming, he is articulate, he is educated. I think he graduated uh, from Harvard. Uh, He speaks about a million miles an hour, if any of you have listened to Ben Shapiro, yeah, I think he could, he could give Ben a run for his money. Uh, but probably the most interesting quality of Vivek is how he really is kind of the poster child of the American dream. Since, first of all, unlike the other candidates, uh, his parents were actually immigrants who came to the U.S. They came in the 80s from India. Um, but secondly, he happens to recruit all of his wealth on his own. So he is an entrepreneur. Now, obviously, Donald Trump himself is also an entrepreneur, but there's a big difference between the two men uh, because Donald Trump actually started off with quite a bit of wealth that was given to him. And with Mr. Ramaswamy, that wasn't the case. He had good, hardworking parents. He celebrates how he was able to stay home with his parents and how they were able to take care of him. But at the same time, they weren't wealthy. And hence, when... Vivek was about 28 years old. He founded a drug development company called Royvent Sciences, which sought to repurpose drugs that pharmaceutical giants had once abandoned. So Royvent's strategy was to purchase drug patents that had not yet been successfully developed by other companies and then bring them to market. And the company took off. Soon enough, Vivek was making lots of money in just his salary, but he didn't stop there. He took his salary, uh, kept purchasing up more shares, buying more of his own company. It accrued in value over about nine or ten years. He made more money. In the meantime, he invested into stocks, bonds, uh, cryptocurrencies, and more. And as a result then, today Vivek is worth approximately $1 billion dollars and at the ripe young age of 38 years old. Pretty impressive, right? Pretty impressive. Well, my question for you is this. If I was able to give you the secret of how to do the same thing with your life, how many of you would want to know it? Within 10 years to make a billion dollars. I know every one of you would say, sign me up. Well, I'm going to do better than that this morning. Because here's what we're going to do. We're going to talk about how to invest your life in such a way that at the end of it, you're going to have far more than a billion dollars because you are going to have a treasure in heaven that Peter describes as a treasure 
that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. Sound right? If so, I want to invite you to turn open your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew, where today we find ourselves in Matthew chapter 25, and we're going to be looking at verses 14 through 30. So we're going to be talking about spiritual economics, how to invest your life for eternal reward. And as you turn over to Matthew, uh, maybe actually go to the beginning of chapter 24, and as you turn over there, allow me to fill in some context. So for the last month or so, we've been looking at the Olivet Discourse. What is that? A discourse is simply a time of instruction. It is a time of teaching. We call it the Olivet Discourse because this time of teaching that Jesus has with the disciples happens to be taking place on the Mount of Olives. And uh, like I said, for a month and a half, we've been looking at this discourse, and uh, you just kind of have to understand that this is the most extensive section of teaching that Jesus has about last things or future things in the Gospels. And in simple, Jesus' message is this, how one day he will return to Jerusalem as king, but not until judgment has come upon Jerusalem and it has been thoroughly destroyed. In fact, Jesus even says of the temple, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Why? Because Israel has rejected Jesus as the Messiah. And because they have turned their back on Jesus, God is now turning his back on them. And keep in mind that Jesus is saying all this within one or two days of him being betrayed and crucified. So he has told his disciples very clearly, guys, I'm going away and destruction's going to happen and someday I'm going to return. Naturally, the disciples have some questions, questions that we see in verse 3, chapter 24. They say, when will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Now, I've mentioned this a couple of times, but I'll just point it out again. How one of the things we learn as we look at the disciples' questions has to do with what they believe will happen in the future. Namely, how Jesus' return will coincide with the destruction of the temple. They expect those things to happen at the exact same time. But Jesus says differently, and that not only does he say lots of time must pass before he comes again after the destruction of the temple, but there's got to be a lot more experiences that take place as well. Well, what kind of experiences precisely? First, Jesus talks about a time of birth pains in verses 4 through 14 in chapter 24. He talks about how when he departs, there's going to be experiences that start to happen and they're going to build in frequency and intensity. He says false messiahs will come. Uh, then there's going to be international conflict, wars, and rumors of wars. Uh, there's going to be natural disasters, earthquakes, famines. Uh, there's going to be holy hardship. God's people are going to be persecuted. Uh, they're going to be handed over to authorities. They're going to be uh, defamed. There's going to be false prophets. There's going to be apostasy, uh, people falling away from the faith, even people who have a love that goes cold. A lot of bad news, right? Things are just going to spiral downward. There is a glimmer of hope in the midst of the birth pains, though. The last birth pain sign to take place happens to be the evangelization of the world. 
So Jesus says, it's going to be a lot of negative things, but at the end of the day, the gospel is going to go out to every tribe and tongue and nation. So birth pains happen, he says, then there's going to be a time of tribulation. Look at verse 21. Jesus describes this tribulation as a time such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now, no, and never will be. So it's going to be very severe, very hard. So birth pains, tribulation, and then Jesus will return. Doesn't exactly answer the question, though, that the disciples were asking, does it? Jesus, when are you going to come? There's no hour given, no days, no months, no years. Jesus essentially just says things are going to get really, really, really bad, and then someday I'm going to come back. But you probably understand the challenge with a reply like that kind of leaves the door open for people to guess when that day might be. Also leaves the door open for people getting exasperated, maybe impatient, maybe even getting lazy as they stop waiting for the day of Christ's return, right? So what does Jesus do to solve this dilemma? Well, to keep the disciples expectant for whenever his return might be, he gives them three encouragements that we began to look at last week. The encouragement being these. First, he says, stay awake. Then he says, stay ready. And then he says, watch. Stay awake, stay ready, and watch. And one thing you have to appreciate about Jesus is that he helps the disciples understand what is meant by these encouragements as he embeds them within stories that we call parables. Now, parables are interesting, right? Because on the one hand, they reveal truth to those who belong to Jesus Christ, those who are his children, but at the same time, they also conceal truth from those who reject him as Messiah. So these parables, they teach God's people about, particularly, the kingdom of heaven. And in our case, they are helping the disciples understand how Jesus wants them to live until the time of his return. And by extension, the same is true of us today, isn't it? Jesus wants us to know how to live until he comes back, and so he gives us very clear instructions. So that's what we looked at again last week and what we'll look at again today. So if you would, follow along with me, beginning in verse 14 in chapter 25. Jesus says, For it, again speaking of his return, will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. So also he who had the two talents and made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here, I have made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he also, who had the two talents, came forward, saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here, I have made two talents more. His master said, 
Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. He also, who had received the one talent, came forward saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here you have what is yours. But his master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant. You knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and at my coming I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has the ten talents, for to everyone who has will more be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And he cast the worthless servants into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So as I thought about how to tackle today's passage, I thought it might be helpful to first kind of start by moving through our passage, pointing out the really important parts and the details uh, of it, and then we would follow that up with applications. So there's going to be a lot of application for you today. There's so much to learn uh, from our text. With that then, notice how our story begins. We are told how a wealthy man decides to go away on a journey, and he leaves his wealth, his money, his talents, we know it's money because that's referred to uh, later, in the care of three servants. And it's obvious who this man represents, right? It represents Jesus, since we're talking about Jesus' departure and subsequent return to the earth. So Jesus is the master in the story. And obviously, since it mentions the man's going away for a long time, uh, that should have kind of cued the disciples in that, you know, Jesus was going to leave, and it was going to be a long wait until he came back again. But it's so uh, appropriate to think of Jesus as the master, right? This is very fitting, because time and again, what do we learn about Jesus? What have we learned about Jesus, specifically in the Gospel of Matthew? We have consistently seen how Jesus is king, which means he has all power and all authority in heaven and on earth. The crowd notices Jesus' authority, which is why they say he taught as one who had authority. Because of Jesus' authority, it is why he cleanses lepers, forgives sins, calms seas, raises the dead, casts out demons, and so many other things. So the master, he leaves, and he leaves his wealth with three servants. And notice on what basis the money is distributed to the servants. It is distributed in accordance with the abilities of the servants. In other words, this is not equity. Okay? We hear a lot about equity today. It becomes imposed in just about every conversation today and how you should treat people. People clamor, equal pay, equal opportunities, equal education, which is often used as an argument for socialism, right? Let's kind of Take all the money, put it in a big pot, take what the rich have, put it in a pot, and let's just distribute it to everybody, give everybody the same thing, right? Uh, Well, apparently the master in our story uh, wasn't enlightened with that uh, information, uh, with those virtues, uh, because that is not what happens, right? He, He takes his wealth, and he gives it to each servant differently. Why? Because each servant is different. He understands each servant's strengths and their weaknesses and their dispositions 
and their acuity and their drive and all of these different things, right? Notice what's given to the servants then. The first servant is given five talents. The second servant is given two talents. And the third servant is given one talent. Now, what's a talent? Again, it's clear that it's money in the story. Scholars believe that a talent had the value, one talent, of 10,000 denarii. You might remember that a denarii happens to be the wage that a day laborer would be paid for their work. So, in other words, the first servant is given 50,000 denarii, the second servant is given 20,000 denarii, and the third servant is given 10,000 denarii. So when you read the story, you go, oh, that poor guy, he only got one talent. But in the grand scheme of things, actually, that was quite a bit of money, right? So the master distributes his wealth, the master departs. Next scene we see, the servants act in verses 16 through 18. We notice the first two servants go out at once and traded with the talents. So there's diligence, there's eagerness, there's ingenuity. They don't wait, they don't hesitate, uh, they go right away, they invest what they've been given. But that is certainly not what the third servant does, right? Because what does he do? He goes out, he digs a hole in the ground, throws his stuff in it, and covers it back up, right? Now... We can laugh at this, but right, this, is, this was a very common practice in Jesus' day, and there obviously wasn't a lot of concrete buildings with safety deposit boxes in them. So one of the safest ways to protect what was yours was dig a hole and put your stuff in it. And really, even like 100 years ago, that was very common. I'm sure that there's still people out there today who are, are doing the same thing, right? And as a result, we have a number of treasure hunters, people that go around with their, you know, uh, metal detectors and they search for hidden buried treasures all over the place, right? Because they know at some point someone dug a hole, put their possessions in it, and never made it back for them. So the servants act. We see that, the second part of the story. And now, at this point, the master returns. And at this point, there's going to be accounting for all that he gave his servants. And how does this work out. Well, the first two servants who invested their talents show the master how they doubled what they were given. So the first servant turned five talents into ten. The second servant turned two talents into four. And therefore, they get a commendation. And they are told of a great reward. They are told, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. Very different However, when it comes to the third servant, and this is where a lot of space is given in the story, right? Because what does that interaction look like? Shockingly, the third servant comes to the master and says in verse 24, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid, and I went and I hid your talent in the ground. Here, you have what is yours. <laughs> now, I don't know about you. But I can safely say that I probably wouldn't have been as gracious as the master is in this story. His response is rather interesting, right? He could have just said, you foolish servant. But he says something interesting. He says, essentially, well, if this is what you thought about who I was, then you still should have understood to go and do something with the money because you're still going to be in big trouble for not doing something with it, right? 
of the servant, we learned, didn't even do the bare minimum. He could have gone and put the money or the talents in the bank. He didn't even do that. Why? He was lazy and he was careless. And ultimately, I think what we learn is this is a rebuke to hypocrites specifically. Why? Because notice how the master points out that even his words, what he says, don't align with his own actions. I was worried. I was afraid. This is who you are. Okay? Well, still your actions didn't reveal your belief about that truth. So that's the story. Now let's get to the application. So the big reality here in our story is obvious. This is all about spiritual stewardship, right? Now we don't use the word stewardship very often, so maybe we'll just insert the word management. It's about spiritual management. And we understand management because everywhere you go, you will find managers. When you go to Costco, you see that there's managers. When you go to Shields, there's managers. When we go to Dairy Queen, which recently is my favorite place, Castleton has Dairy Queen. There are managers. And typically, managers do not manage something they own. Obviously, some do. But most are there to do what the owner wants. And most importantly, to increase the value of what the owner has. So managers, they pay bills. They hire, fire, and train employees. Uh, they make sure the store is in good working condition. And hopefully that the floors and the bathrooms are cleaned that the supplies are adequately restocked, and that customers are happy. Well, friends, no matter who you are, God has given you some things to manage. He has blessed you with a stewardship. And the question ultimately is this, are you stewarding what God has given you in such a way that shows faith or faithlessness? Let me say that again. Are you stewarding what God has given you in such a way that shows faith or faithlessness? Remember, again, the purpose of these parables. It's not contrasting less faithful Christians with more faithful Christians. It's contrasting those who know God and those who don't. So this is a comparison, really, between the righteous and the wicked. So when we see the behavior of the righteous or we see the faithfulness of certain people, we go, that's what faith looks like, a faith that's real, a faith that truly is a saving faith. So that's what's going on in the parables, which is why we're asking the questions. How are you using what you have? Does it reveal true faith in Jesus, or does it reveal faithlessness? Because one day you will have to give an account to the Lord. One day you will stand before him, and on that day, how will you respond? Well, if you're not sure, that's why we're looking at today's passage, so that you'll kind of have an understanding of what to expect. And so what we're going to spend our time in now is I'm going to give you three, consider them spiritual investment questions to prepare you for the day when God audits your spiritual investments, okay? Three spiritual investment questions to prepare you for the day when God audits your investments. First question that we always need to ask and some of this is going to be very basic, but it's so helpful for us to think about. First question to think about is this, what are my talents? What are my talents? Now, obviously, like I said in the story, the talents were indeed money, but it's clear that God has given us so much more than money, and he wants us to think way beyond money. You have possessions. You have a home. Maybe you have an apartment. Maybe you have a townhome. 
Maybe you have land. Maybe you have vehicles. Maybe you have one vehicle. Maybe you have businesses, right? All possessions belong to the Lord. You have relationships. Maybe you have a spouse. Maybe you have a brother, a sister, a girlfriend, a boyfriend, parents, children, friends, coworkers. All relationships in your life are something to be carefully stewarded for the Lord. You have time. Some of you don't have time. That's what you'd say. And maybe you're right. You have less time than others. Some of you have more time than others. Some of you that have more time than others, you're pretty happy most of the time. Some of you have less time than others. You kind of envy those who have time. Again, remember, the master distributes each according to their ability. So let's not besmirch or begrudge what God has given us, but let's redeem all things for his glory. God has given you skills. All of you have a variety of experiences that you've picked up over the years. You've developed skills through those experiences. Those are to be stewarded for the Lord. Spiritual gifts. If you're in Christ, if you love Jesus, you have been given a gift. We'll come back to that in a moment. Very critical to use your gift for the glory of God. You also have opportunities. Some of you this last year were confronted with an opportunity you never expected. Some of you in the next year will be confronted with opportunities you didn't see coming. In fact, let me just give you a small story. I was thinking about this. and So when I was working for Youth for Christ, this is now many years ago, it seems, um, I had a man who came to me, and he offered to actually scholarship my education. And you're thinking, that's pretty cool. Let me just tell you, when he gave that invite, it didn't seem cool. I was stressed out beyond belief. I'm just a farm kid from the middle of North Dakota. I do not belong in seminary, okay? That has always been my thought. So when he brought this opportunity to me, all I could think is, why me? Like, why someone else? There's a lot smarter people out there in the world. Uh, there's a lot of folks who probably would be aspiring for this. This is like what they've always wanted to do. I was doing ministry, certainly felt a call in that direction. Um, but man, I was so stressed out. I was waking up night after night after night, just sweating profusely. And there were even times where I'm like, how do I transfer this opportunity to someone else? One thing that really helped through, the, through everything that was going on, though, is I had a friend who said, yeah, but the opportunity was, was made to you. It was made to you. Friends, you have opportunities given to you. The question is going to be, what are you going to do with those? Frankly, Harvest Plains Church would not be here today if I had let fear dictate my decision in that moment. Praise the Lord for friends that tell you to do the things that you don't want to do at times in order to be faithful to the Lord. So we see here, what are my talents? And obviously, uh, a, a big question that every Christian needs to ask is, what am I doing with the gospel? The gospel is a stewardship. Now, obviously, we know Paul speaks of himself as being a steward of the gospel, and he was in a very unique sense since he was an apostle as he helped lay the foundation of the church around Christ. But the fact is, if you're saved, if you're in Christ, you have the same message, and it is the only hope for the entire world. So what are you doing with it? So you have to begin with this question. What are my talents? What do I have? Take an inventory. 
And this brings you to the next question, which is this, what are God's priorities? So once you know what you have, then you need to be asking, how am I using these things in a way that aligns with God's prerogatives? What are God's priorities? And I'm going to give you, and I'm sure I'm going to miss the mark on some of these, but uh, I'm going to give you five principles to help you kind of understand uh, God's priorities. First question is this, or first uh, principle is this, God desires you to use your talents for his glory. God desires you to use his talents, your talents for his glory. What does this mean? I think John Piper is helpful in thinking about what it means to glorify God. So when we talk about glorifying God, we're talking about magnifying God. Now, you can magnify something in such a way that you take something small and make it big. That's what you do with a microscope. You take a speck of dirt, you put it under there, and it becomes big, right? That's not what we do when we magnify the Lord. No, what we do is much more like the Hubble telescope. Our goal is to look at God who is great and grand and wonderful and live in such a way that it brings him who seems so far away to people in front of them and, and makes him big. That's what the telescope does, right? You have stars far away. They are huge. They're amazing, but they're far away, difficult to see. So the, the question becomes, how are you using everything in your life to magnify the Lord to those who are around you? Colossians 3, verse 23, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. In other words, there should be no possession or no area of your life that is marked mine on the outside of it. And it's weird we do this, but we do, don't we? And sometimes we justify it. Well, I'm doing, I'm doing okay over here, and I'm just going to shield this area of my life. This is going to be kind of my, my thing, my enjoyment, my my luxury, what have you. And so we store up idols in our lives where we get a little bit reckless and careless and lazy at times. Jonathan Edwards, though, is very helpful when you think about these kinds of things. Uh, Jonathan Edwards is well known that today he was a theologian who was used mightily by God in the first great awakening. Uh, today he is oftentimes just known because he is John Piper's favorite theologian. But uh, when Edwards was 19 years old, he wrote seven resolutions which focused on a variety of areas to honor the Lord with, ranging from personal conduct to spiritual disciplines to relationships with others. So, and in fact, you can go buy a book that goes through these resolutions. They are incredibly inspiring to look at. I'm only going to read you the first resolution that he wrote down. Edwards said, resolved that I will do whatsoever I think to be most to God's glory and my own good, profit, and pleasure in the whole of my duration without any consideration of the time, whether now or never so many myriads of ages hence. He was consumed by the glory of God. He sought to redeem every moment. So when you think about magnifying God with what you have, a question, think about your money. The question is, do I use money in such a way as to show to the world that money is not my God, but Jesus is? Do I use my home in such a way that reveals to the world that my house is not my God, Jesus 
is. That's a great way to think about glorifying the Lord. So that's principle number one. Use your talents for God's glory. Principle number two, use your talents in submission to God-ordained authority. Use your talents in submission to God-ordained authority. So we are not silos and disconnected from other relationships. At any given time, we are under authority that God has placed in our life. And these authorities can actually be really helpful in trying to understand God's will for our lives. Obviously, we're always asking, Lord, what do you want from us if we're believers? How do you want me to live? And obviously, we know where the will of God can be found. His revealed will is in the Bible, right? Each and every day, we can pick it up and go, this is how God wants me to live. And yet, there's this subjective aspect of God's will where we're like, all right, I know you want me to be honest. I know you want me to be trustworthy. I know you want me to be dependable. I know you want me to be godly. But, but then you think about the more subjective. But as it pertains to this specific person, how can I be a blessing to them? How do you want me to care for them, right? How do you figure some of these things out? Or even like your vocation, okay, be godly, but God, what do you want me to do? Where do you want me to go to college, Where do you want me to move and live and settle down roots, right? All these types of questions. As you think about the authorities God's placed in your life, it can, at times, help to bring some clarity. And as you think about authority, there's probably more types of authority. I'm going to give you four. So first, of course, there is government authority. Paul says in Romans 13, 1, let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there's no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. So obviously, if something's illegal, we go, all right, that's not what God wants me to do. Now, obviously, there are the occasions when the government makes something illegal that actually honors God, such as saying, well, you're not going to preach Christ. And we go, "Mm, I'm going to honor God rather than man, right? But, But those situations are few and far in between. So you have government authority. Then there's family authority. We have the family unit. Man, especially in the family, God brings clarity to what we should do with our desires. We're told throughout Scripture, husbands should love their wives, wives should respect their husbands, children should submit to their parents. And uh, I, I hate that I even have to say this, but I can't tell you how many times that husbands have trampled their wives and wives have trampled their husbands because of something that they believe the Lord has called them to do. Let me just say that Our spouses are a blessing from the Lord. They end up being safety restraints for us, keeping us from doing some things we don't do. And any husband that moves ahead without taking into consideration the wisdom of his wife is a fool and vice versa. As it pertains to children, similarly, if you're a child, think of this. God has given you parents for your good. If you have a desire to use your time, money, and energy to do certain things, but at the end of the day, your parents are going, I don't think this is a good idea. I think it's kind of foolish. What is God's will for your life? Whatever your parents just said to you. Now, obviously, this becomes a gray area as you move outside the home, but if you're living in the home, you're under your parents' protection, you're under their provision, God has called you to submit to your parents. So whatever comes out of your parents' mouth then, whatever it happens to be, take out the trash, do the dishes, is actually God's will, his infallible will for your life. And again, similar to the government, 
Obviously, if your parents are asking you to do something that dishonors God, you choose to honor God, absolutely. Uh, very rare, however, that that happens. Um, so yes, you have family authority, then you have job authority. Ephesians 6, Paul says, Bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ. So when you're on the clock, what's God's will for your life? You honor your employer. You do what they want, you do it when they want, and you do it how they want. That's God's will. You don't sit, you don't pout, you don't throw a pity party, you don't complain, you submit, you show respect, and you show honor. And then you have church authority. Hebrews 13, 17, obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. So it is very common that in the church, you might have a desire to serve in some sort of capacity. Maybe you desire to do something where there's no ministry that exists. What do you do in those types of situations? Let me give you some advice. You, you talk to your elders, because your elders are responsible for the vision, direction, mission, and discipleship of the church. And you conduct your life in such a way that within the church, you be a unity protector and a division disarmer. Anything you so desire to do within the church, you don't insist on your own way, and, and, you, and you, don't, you certainly don't go against, as far as you are able, right, the wisdom of those in leadership. These all end up being safety restraints as we think about these authorities, so I'm, I'm hoping that they're of help to you. Third principle, God desires you to use your talents with integrity. God desires you to use your talents with integrity. So question, does your vocation honor Christ? Good, praise the Lord. But if it doesn't, time to change your vocation. Does your work within your vocation honor Christ? Are you compromising? Don't. Even if your superiors tell you to. My wife, uh, not her current employer, but many years ago, she came back from work. She had a little check in her stomach because her employer was uh, telling her to bill patients, she's a physical therapist, for time that she hadn't really spent with them. And she kind of didn't know how this all worked. I don't even remember how it all turned out, and, uh, but I do know it was all cleared up. But the fact you're going to have these moments Go to your employer, talk to them, honor the Lord, whatever you're doing. As it pertains to relationship, are you acting with purity? Are you taking advantage of others? Are you driven by greed? Or are you constantly seeking to improve the spiritual condition of every person you spend time with? I say this especially, I'm going to call out the young men this morning. But men, you enter into a relationship with a young woman. The question is, if that relationship doesn't work out, is that, is that woman going to be closer to Jesus as a result of having spent time with you or not? And it works both ways, right? But are we conducting ourselves in that kind of way where we're going, Lord, this is your relationship. How can I help this person get closer to you? Number four, God desires you to use your talents for earthly family. So financially, it's pretty obvious in the New Testament. Paul says in 1 Timothy 5.8, but if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. So 
The priority is clear. God, the home, the church. Okay? God, the home, and then the church. You have to take care of those in your own family or you're considered worse than an unbeliever. So we see this, but obviously we see that you are to care for your family and pursue their emotional, spiritual, and mental health as well. So the question becomes this, especially for husbands, do you center your home on the word of God and the hope of Christ? Husbands, do you water your wife with the word? Wives, do you encourage your husbands with the word? For both, do you raise your children with the word, bringing them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord? That is not primarily the church's responsibility. I hope you understand that. That is your responsibility as parents to teach your kids the way of Christ. Children, do you seek to build up your siblings in the Lord? Whatever your age is, six years old, seven years old, 12 years old, if you've chosen to follow the Lord, then you also contribute to an environment in the home that's pushing and pointing other people back to Jesus. You have the ability and the power to make an amazing difference in the home, no matter what your age is. So that's principle number four. Now principle number five, God desires you to use your talents for spiritual family. And like I said, I needed to come back to this. If you're a Christian, friend, God's given you a spiritual gift to use, and it's not simply for your good. Certainly there is a certain enjoyment I hope that you receive when you use your gift, but you've been given a gift for the good of God's body. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, now there are varieties of gifts, but the same spirit. There are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the spirit for the common good. And no doubt some of you are going, but I don't even know what my gift is. Well, guess what? It's a great reason to get involved and spend time around the church and the body of Christ. Because as you just serve, you find out what your gifts are. And people come around you and they go, you know, I am immeasurably blessed when you, when you do this. I see how others are blessed when you do this. You learn your spiritual gifts when you're faithful simply to get involved and serve as God tells you to. We get so caught up on the gift, but it's very clear that when you look in 1 Corinthians, the focus is always on the heart. It's always on the motivation. You can have a gift and really misuse that gift, be selfish with that gift. That's why Paul goes through great lengths to explain the importance of love, right? So God desires you to use your time, talents, energy, all these things as well for spiritual family. So are you involved? Do you serve? Do you practice the one another's of scripture? Do you use your money to help the family of God and support the teaching of the word? So God, family, church. Not God, family, school, not God, family, sports. Like, listen, we're starting, football season starts today. Can I hear an amen? Okay. But it's funny how we can make an idol of so many other things, right? I saw a meme this week, made me laugh. Uh, the meme said, that time of the year, we're a professional sports team that doesn't know about my existence determines my mood for the next four months. <laughs> Does that happen? Friends, invest into Christ, you won't have that kind of disappointment if you're using what God has given you to serve those around you. So we have these principles to guide us. 
Now we come to our third and final question, which is this, do I act with fear or do I act with faith? Do I act with fear or do I act with faith? Think about the third servant for a minute because what did he do? He buried what he had because he was afraid of the master. Why? Notice what he says about the master. He calls him hard. I knew you to be a hard man. Hard can be translated as strict, harsh, cruel, or merciless. And if you take that with the other comments of the servant, here's what he's really saying of his master, that he is unjust, that he is capricious, and he is even exploitative because of how he supposedly takes advantage of others expecting returns where he hasn't invested. So what do we see here? We see how faithless actions are guided by faithless thoughts of God. Faithless actions are guided by faithless and faulty thoughts of God. So if that's the question that we struggle with fear, what's the solution? Pretty obvious, Paul says the solution is that faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Faith is fed by the knowledge of God. If you want your faith to grow, your knowledge of God has to grow as well. For faith to grow, you have to meditate on God's promises, think on God's precepts, and pray for God's wisdom. There's no other way around it. Faulty view of God leads to faithlessness. And there's a number of other places where we see this connection. We could think about Matthew 6, where Jesus teaches on anxiety. Remember there, he's saying, don't be anxious, disciples. Don't, don't be worrying about your life, what you're going to eat, what you're going to wear. Life's way more important than these things. And then he says in verse 26, look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? It's like they've forgotten how God views them, how God thinks of them, how God loves them, how God is committed to them. And we do the same, don't we? We can think even in Matthew 10. Remember, this is the point at which the disciples are sent out to the lost sheep of the tribes of Israel. And Jesus says, I want you to go. Whoever takes you into their house, be thankful. Eat what they have in front of you. Don't take two tunics. Just trust. I'm going to provide. So they go out. He says there's going to be potentially some opposition, and then he says, do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Translation, the worst that the world can do to you doesn't even come close to the worst that God can do to you. So if you're going to be fearing something, what should it be? Fearing the Lord. Fearing the Lord. Trusting in the Lord, having faith in the Lord, depending on the Lord. And oh, friends, we need this, right? Because how often are we still dictated by our fears? And you know this, but I'm going to say it to you anyways. Only one thing is going to win, okay? Either fear will drive away faith or faith will drive away fear. That's it. And you think about the ministry of Jesus. Is this not what he has been trying to show the disciples time and again? Does he not consistently try to help them understand God's power, God's concern, God's faithfulness, God's dependability? I mean, he feeds thousands more than once with just a few loaves and a few pieces of fish. That's it. 
the point. God doesn't need you to be strong. He doesn't need you to be rich. He doesn't need you to be well supplied. He only calls you to be surrendered and faithful with what you've been given. So the question is, church, be surrendered? You're going to open your hands? You're going to say, God, work? Everything is yours. Take it. Do what you want. Or are you going to hold it back, dig a hole, and bury it in the ground? Those are the two options in front of you. You can either invest your talents with faith or hide them with fear. So what's it going to be? Whatever it ends up being, you need to think carefully because know this, what you choose to do comes with eternal consequences. What kind? Go back to Matthew 25. Look again at verse 29. Jesus says, For to everyone who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. There is a profound paradox with the gospel. The paradox is this, that the person who guards his possessions as though they were his he forfeits them later. But the one who stewards all things for Christ stores up endless treasure in heaven of which they cannot even comprehend the likes of. So perhaps you are familiar with uh, the name Jim Elliott. Jim Elliott was a famous missionary pilot, and uh, he sought to reach the Alka Indians with the gospel in 1956. Elliott and his friends had been uh, flying over the Alka Indians regularly, dropping gifts and shouting greetings. Eventually, the time had come that they knew they needed to get on the ground and try and make contact. So they built a hut, and they just waited, waited for the people to show up. Now, don't get me wrong. They knew the dangers of this. In fact, uh, their wives had even discussed the possibility of becoming widows. At the same time, though, they knew they belonged to God, and they felt they had no choice but to willingly obey him. They just felt compelled. We have to reach this tribe with the gospel. On Friday, January 6th, actually three Alka men, um, or Alkas showed up. One man and two women approached them. It was a pleasant interaction. They exchanged greetings. The missionaries showed them some rubber bands, some yo-yos, some balloons. And uh, the man was actually taken up in the plane. On Sunday, January 8th, they were due to radio in at 4.30 in the afternoon. There was silence, absolute silence. No message came. Eventually, a plane was sent and then a rescue party. Four of their bodies were recovered. The fifth was never found. It seems they were ambushed. All five were martyred for the sake of Christ. All were married. All four were fathers. One wife was pregnant. There is little doubt that most people in the world would look at Jim Elliott and his friends and think they were so foolish for what they attempted to do. And yet, Jim Elliott is remembered today for this quote. He said, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to keep what he cannot lose. Let me say that again. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to keep what he cannot lose. So friend, I ask you today, where's your heart? How are you 
acting with what you have received. One day you will have to give an account. Now, before we close, I just want to point out one last thing. Keep in mind this third servant for a minute. Particularly, notice what the servant is not rebuked for. He is not rebuked for things he does against the master, but for that which he failed to do for his master. What's the significance of it? Well, think of it this way. I know that there are plenty of you here, you would say, I'm, I'm doing all right. Feel like, you know, I'm not, I'm not too foul of a character. I'm, I'm not marked by rampant immorality. Perhaps you have people who would say very good things about you. Perhaps they'd say you are a good neighbor. Perhaps they would say that you are overall a very honest person. But the question still remains, what's driving you? What's motivating you? Is it a concern for the glory and the honor of Jesus Christ? Or is it all about your own image or perhaps even self-preservation? You will one day meet judgment if you do not surrender to King Jesus and surrender all that you have and all that you are. He would take all that you have away and he will place you in hell where you will spend the rest of eternity, a place that nobody, nobody should ever want to be, a place of eternal torment, a place where Jesus describes as a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. And so I close with this. Friend, do not love the world. Do not love the world. Do not live with safety and security and comfort as your God. Turn to Jesus, live for him, and you will have eternal reward that can never be taken away. Let's pray. Thank you so much for listening. We hope this sermon encourages you as you go about your week. If you're in Castleton or even the Fargo-Moorhead area, come check us out. Our website is harvestplainschurch.org. That's harvestplainschurch.org. Thanks again, and we hope you'll tune in next week.